Happy Saturday. It's September 25th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, a deputy editor here at Airmail. Welcome to the last Saturday of September. So sad. Michael, before we delve into October, I was wondering, what are you doing on September 29th, which is next Wednesday? Well, I am going to be with you at and the Airmail Ape Coffee for fans of Morning Meeting, right out in New York City. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, if you're in the New York area, we are having a morning meetup, get the joke, at Big and Olive in the West Village, 420 West 13th Street, from 9 to 12 on Wednesday, September 29th. We will be there. Come hang out with us. We will give you free coffee, and you can tell us all of your complaints about the show. We're here to listen. Also, all of your compliments, jokes aside, Ashley and I, we're talking. We get a lot of wonderful reaction on our Instagram pages from you guys and across how much people enjoy the show. And I was saying to Ashley this past weekend, I got a lovely letter from a woman, Sally Arnold, on my LinkedIn account of all places. And she wrote to me, Love Morning Meeting. It's my top podcast of hope from the world's longest lockdown city, Melbourne, Australia. I always listen while walking Sienna the Jack Russell Terrier. Great, fabulous listening. And I said to Ashley, like, wouldn't it be good? Too bad we can't meet so many people. And Ashley, of course, as always, had the great idea. She said, let's do a morning meeting meetup. And here we go. We're going to do it. Dun, dun, dun. It's also National Coffee Day. So for those of you who know that we like to over-caffeinate and it's one of our favorite activities, we will be there ensuring that you also have so much caffeine coursing through your system that you no longer know your own name. (laughs) Anyway, so see you there Wednesday, Fig and Olive, West Village, 420 West 13th from 9 to noon. Michael and I will be there uh, in full force and we hope to see you. Come rain or come shine. All right, Michael, on that note, let's delve into another irresistible issue of airmail. What do we have this week? You know, we've got we've got a lot of tech bros and tech people behaving badly. That's what we've got right now. Those are my favorite kind. It's like if Elizabeth Holmes isn't going to usher me through this phase of the pandemic, I don't know who will. I feel we should start with Cassie David's view from here this week, which is, I think, you know, an idea that you had sort of sparked about if you've been following the news of late. There's a lot of horrible behavior that's been revealed about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and the Wall Street Journal and other places. And Cassie takes it as an opportunity to talk about how it's really affecting girls. And and as, as I've said, this is not about the future is female, but under Facebook, thank you, it's the future is female anxiety, right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I mean, as Cassie writes in her view from here, the least surprising news ever broke last week. It turns out that Facebook, its brass, and Instagram and its brass have known what everyone has known for years now, which is that there's scientific evidence proving that Instagram has a a very negative effect on the mental health of teens. Cassie said it's just so obvious that it feels almost comical to need research to prove it. And now the greatest thing of all is this is like Marlboro saying, let's make cigarettes for kids. Instagram is now doing Instagram for kids now, or that's what they've announced they're going to do, right? Yeah, it's the worst idea ever. But we know how bad this stuff is for kids. So the fact that they would be going out there and trying to lure in a new customer base is really pretty egregious and shameful. As Cassie says, you know, if Facebook really wanted to make an app safer for kids, they wouldn't create a new app that encourages 
children basically begin their addiction and mental decline before the age of 13. So, But a lot of duplicitous, sort of um, decidedly evil behavior from Mark Zuckerberg. He knows about these problems and he's chosen to ignore them as he, just as it was revealed this week that Facebook now allows millions of users to whitelist these VIPs who they're exempt from content moderation practices. So it's been an interesting week for social media, which has continued in a very funny but still weird bit of reporting by George Kalajrakis, a Modern Times column this week about how everyone from Jeff Bezos to Mark Zuckerberg, they're having what we call the mega midlife crises of the mega rich. And the news kind of came out recently in the MIT Technology Review as George writes that some Silicon Valley billionaires like Bezos and uh, have in, become reportedly become investors in a new biological reprogramming company called Altos Labs, which wants to use technology to rejuvenate cells in the lab that some t- scientists think could be extended to revitalize entire animal bodies, ultimately prolonging human life. And the new company is recruiting a huge cadre of scientists with lavish salaries and the promise that they can pursue unfettered blue sky research on how cells age and how to reverse that process. So you've got that. You've got Zuckerberg and his wife recently committed $600 million to finance a bio hub, which is looking to see if it's possible to prevent or manage all diseases by the end of the century, basically prolong life, right? You know, it's like, unless Zuckerberg has a major change of course, I don't think history is going to look on him very kindly. So living to 120 might not be as fun as he expects if the entire world hates him and thinks that he's the source of one of the great evils of his time. Okay, Michael, we're seeming pretty dark and evil on this episode of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, if you join us at Fig and Olive next week, it's going to be only friendly conversation. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not we're evil. Not I'm just evil. talking about evil geniuses. So that's all I'm doing. I'm We're good geniuses talking about <laughs> evil geniuses. <laughs> There you go. All right. Well, in happier news, uh, there's a new museum in Los Angeles. Uh, It's for movie lovers. It's the new Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. And Sam Watson takes us there in this week's issue. He says, you know, that this place has very little to say about movie history, but it speaks a lot about Hollywood. Well, as Sam says, it's sort of, you know, he took a tour of the new $250 million Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, which is, as he says, it's sort of like today's movies. It's big budget, bloated bland and kind of lacking a plot. So it just sort of makes makes people want, makes Sam wonder why this museum and why now? But, you know, maybe they should have taken a portion of that $250 million and tried to make a study group and figure out how to make an Academy Award show that people actually want to watch. All right. Well, on the topic of women who are way out of their time, Margarazzo takes a look at Karen Dalton, who is a marvelous singer from the era of Bob Dylan. And she has a new film that has come out looking at her incredible influence and the fact that she was really overlooked by history. I love this story. It is like music lovers and history lovers unite. It's everything you need. Yes, it's coming out October 1 in theaters and starts streaming on numerous platforms on the 16th of November. But Many of you may not know Karen Dalton. She was a folky in the 60s. Bob Dylan once said she had a voice like Billie Holiday. And she was kind of, she's been kind of forgotten 
And the, but the Billie Holiday comparisons are always graded on Dalton's nerves. But she and Dylan shared stages together in, in the glory days of the, or the early 60s when Dalton, who was half Cherokee Oakey with this luminous presence, as everyone says, she was sort of like Allie McGraw with a Gibson 12-string and a banjo. And as Mark says, she hit the scene like a meteor. And this is really the first ambitious attempt to find the true Dalton, who she was, what she did, and where she sits in her own pantheon. And uh, the, the film, for those of you who know her work, takes its name from her second album, which was recorded in 1971, 50 years ago now, at Bearsville Studios up in the Catskills, which was sort of this brigadoon of music titans back then. Everyone from Dylan to Todd Rundgren made it the Laurel Canyon of the East. So it's a, it's a really beautiful piece by Mark and a film I was going to recommend it this week but now we should just I think everyone should see it because it's, it's a great way to meet a woman who has been kind of forgotten in the last 50 years right absolutely definitely overlooked you know who else is getting some payback these days it's a great story but not Zuckerberg no it's a fun smart informed piece by Milton Estrow, an art column this week by about Francois Gillot, who, if you don't know her, you have seen her portrait. It was painted by Picasso more than once, and or she was with him for 10 years. She left him in 1953 after 10 years together and two children. And at the time, Picasso tried to get her blacklisted. He was so angry at her. She spent the next 50, 60 years painting She's about to turn 100 this fall. And at the same time, if you find yourself down in Provence, there's a museum there, the Musée Estrine, where there is a show of her works, which now, despite Picasso's anger at her, sell routinely for millions and millions of dollars. Last May, her painting, a portrait of her and Picasso's daughter, Paloma, it sold for 1.3 at Sotheby's in London, which was seven times it's high estimate. So her work is getting out there and getting noticed. If you find yourself in Provence in October, which is already be a great place to find yourself, be sure and check out that show. See you there. Okay, so there's been a lot of airing of Dirty Laundry this week, but I think our favorite instance comes courtesy of Anderson Cooper, who has co-authored a new book about the history of his family. His mother was Gloria Vanderbilt, for those who are, live under a rock. It's out now, it's fascinating, and Anderson is here to tell us all about how it came together. So last in last week's issue of Airmail, we had a story about a new book, Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty, written by Anderson Cooper, along with the historian Catherine Howe. Anderson, usually, obviously, very busy man, was an unable to join us last week, but he's here this week to talk about a book which I think is one of the most compelling page-turners, all true, to come along in a long time. And uh, so we're going to have him on the show. Anderson, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big airmail fan. <laughs> the interview's over. That's all we needed here. <laughs> so... Let's get to this book, which, you know, for people who are not so familiar with the Vanderbilts, I think, as I think you say specifically in the book, it's the greatest American fortune ever squandered, right? Of which you are a descendant of that, right? 
Yes, the first Vanderbilt who came to America was in the mid-1600s as an indentured servant, a poor farmer from Holland who essentially sold his labor for several years in order to get get passage over here. And within about two generations or three generations, a boy was born on Staten Island named Cornelius Vanderbilt, who at age 11 dropped out of school, started working on his dad's small little boat ferrying supplies from Staten Island to Manhattan, ended up building a fortune in steamships, a railroad fortune, died in 1870. 77 with $100 million, which at the time was more money than was in the U.S. Treasury. And his son doubled the fortune to $230 million in just eight years before he died. And then subsequent generations just opened the spigots of spending. And at the time, New York society was kind of just forming and it was had been defined by Carolyn Astor. And the Vanderbilts were this nouveau riche family who had were trying to break into New York society and finally had the money to do it. And they went at it with a vengeance and a relentlessness that ultimately was successful, building huge palaces that within 60 years of being built, most of them, and there were more than a dozen in New York, were all torn down. And there's very little of that remains. And it's just a, it's a fascinating story of this kind of American myth of this Horatio Alger story of somebody creating something out of nothing and living the life of everything that the American myth is built on of wealth and fame. And yet, what Catherine and I were interested in focusing on is the lives that the people that we read about in history books were actually living, the inner lives that they were living. I'm going to use the word fascinating a lot with this book because I think one of the things that is so intriguing about it is you get into these lives, right? And it's not just about lies, but as you're sort of pointing out here, it's how money, Cornelius Vanderbilt's sort of insatiable hunger for money drives him. and But then how it shapes and cripples and kind of in some ways destroys an American family, which is yours, right? And just that resonance of, of, of impact of great wealth over decades and um, how everyone thinks that's the dream, but it's, it's toxic effect really on, on a family, right? Which I can imagine some listeners hearing that will think, oh, boo-hoo, wow, what a really, right. uh, how horrible they had $100 million and, you know, wasted it. This book is not a book of sort of complaining about a lost empire. I grew up not knowing anything or not being, and not consciously not knowing anything about the Vanderbilts, not being interested in the Vanderbilts. And I got that message really from my mom, who knew nothing about them, even though she was born into that family at the height of their their wealth and status. But to me, it's a story of this man who had a mania for money, in his words, a pathological obsession with amassing a fortune. And he did that. And he was ruthless and cunning and didn't care about his family and was a fascinating character, but extraordinarily difficult and and a very tough businessman. And how that mania for money, how that pathology infects the subsequent generations. And every subsequent generation is, in, in our view, infected with that money for, in some cases, you know, it enables them to, well, it enables them to build remarkable houses and have yachts and boats, but it was not a pathology that led them to great acts of generosity of and building lasting foundations that would help other people. It was uh, built on the desire to break into society, to define New York society, and it was based on conspicuous consumption. And as times changed and taxes came into play, it dissipated and ultimately disappeared. You've spoken in, the, in a couple of interviews that I've seen where you've, when you were growing up, you actively kind of didn't know about this 
thread of your family or this, where you had come from, correct? Yeah, I knew enough to know I didn't want to know. I didn't want to associate with it. I didn't want to walk into a room. I'd already, as a little kid, my mom became famous. I mean, my mom was famous always, but I remember my mom suddenly becoming famous when, you know, she launched this uh, jeans business and it didn't, it was extraordinarily successful and she was on television commercials and all of a sudden, even more than she'd ever had been before, she was being recognized as, you know, when walking down the street together and women were all, everyone were wearing her jeans with her name on it. And I knew noticed that. And I noticed the difference in how people treated her after that and, and looked on my brother and I differently as well. I could, you could see the, when somebody learned who my mom was, or if I met somebody and told them who my mom was, you could see the calculations going on in their mind, even if they hit it very well. And I didn't like that change in, I don't know if status is the right word, but that change in how I was viewed. And I realize early on, like, no good can come of having this Vanderbilt association. I was very glad not to have that last name. I was very glad to have the name Cooper. And I just never talked about the Vanderbilts. I would go out of my way when I met people to not have them find out who my mom was right away. Yeah, I, I really just felt like I wanted to walk into a room and have people judge me based on anything else other than this notion of what they think my life must be like or what they think my bank account must have been like because that money was not there, That what they were imagining. I mean, I used to read when I was a kid or when the internet started, you know, suddenly you would read online that my mom had $200 million and I was going to inherit all that and none of that was true and it was very interesting perspective to have people believe that about me and not say anything about it. I'm not good at math, but I'm, if I'm doing it correctly, I think $100 million in what, 1877? 77. 77 or so. Is, was that worth like $3.5 billion now or something crazy? Yeah, something like that. But even putting it in those terms, it's hard to... It's hard to fathom it, right? Right, it, because, I mean, $3 billion, like that money... There was no fortune at that time that was like that. So one out of every $20 in circulation in America at that time, if you had been able to take out one out of every $20, that would have belonged to the Vanderbilts. That would have belonged to Cornelius Vanderbilt. So he had more money than the U.S. Treasury had. So in a nutshell, why did it fall apart? Why did they blow through all this money? I mean, were they just idiots? Were they, no disrespect to your family, but like, were they just un... Right, yeah. They didn't have any fa- a family office to advise them? I mean, like, is it just gigantic sums of money land in your lap and you have nothing to check you on it. I think for it was different for different people, but I think for that first generation, which was uh, my great-grandfather, Cornelius Vanderbilt II, his brother, Willie Kay, they were the generation that suddenly had the opportunity to become part of New York society. Until then, the Vanderbilts were nouveau riche. They wanted to break into that Edith Wharton world, right? Correct. And they did. I mean, Edith Wharton wrote about them and at that whole time, obviously, and they built these palaces to do it. They built these palaces to impress. They were the definition of conspicuous consumption. They spent just untold sums of money building, you know, the breakers in Newport and Marble House in Newport and Bergdorf Goodman department store, that entire block was my great grandfather's house. And, you know, from the time it was built to the time it was torn down was only about 60 years. Tax laws changed, inheritance taxes, personal income taxes, uh, property taxes. And suddenly these houses that 60 years ago, the Vanderbilt money could afford to keep up with 50 servants suddenly were too big to keep up and nobody wanted them. They were sold off and usually torn down and the parts sold off for a fraction of what they had cost to movie studios. 
I mean, it is, when you're talking about it, and then you mentioned movie studios, it does have a whiff of Citizen Kane to it, right? It does have that. Oh, completely, yeah. It does. It's funny, the Citizen Kane imagery, my mom, who was really, in the book, we call her the, the last Vanderbilt, because in many, in my mind, she really was, is the kind of the last Vanderbilt. She was the last to be born into that world. She was born in 1924. She was the last whose birth and death made the front pages of, of papers around the world. She was the last person to have known that world, which has really disappeared, where the Vanderbilts were tabloid fodder every single day in the very early days of, of tabloids. And she had this storage unit where all her life she, she would send stuff, and she was constantly moving and very restless. And she had the storage unit that I, when I was a kid, I'd saw, seen Citizen Kane, and I imagined it as the storage unit in Citizen Kane with this furnace just burning money. And it used to keep me up at night when I was a little kid, obsessing about how much money was being wasted just in keeping this storage unit that my mom had never, ever been to and had been there for like 40 years. As a kid, my dad did take me to Grand Central Station and to show me the statue of Commodore Vanderbilt. And that was the first time I'd heard the Vanderbilt name was the first time I sort of, and I don't even remember really what he said, but I just remember coming away with it, believing for quite some time that all grandparents turned into statues when they died. And in writing the book, I've subsequently learned that that statue was not like built by the city in gratitude for the remarkable contributions of Commodore Vanderbilt. It was built by Commodore Vanderbilt to let people know of his greatness. And it used to be on the top of a building he owned. And then it was moved to Grand Central Station, which he founded on land that he owned at 16 acres of that part of, of Manhattan. So I have an idea, a monument to me. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we're going to tear down that building, but let's save that monument to me and bring it to another location. I have a better place for this. <laughs> yes. He also had lots of portraits of himself made and given out to all his children so that they would have to have a big portrait of him in their home. That way you don't have to buy it. I can just give it to you as a gift. <laughs> yes, exactly. Are you afraid of losing your money? <laughs> no, because I grew up watching money being lost and knowing it was being lost. And I, from a very young age, I was very aware of this is not me. This is something my mom has, or this is money my mom has, but it's not money I'm going to have. And I need to forge my own way. You have a son now, right? Yeah. A child. Would you see people like Lorene Powell Job saying, I'm leaving nothing to my daughter, right? I mean, that's extraordinary wealth, right? Extreme wealth. Has this book informed how you think about what you'll do for your son? Oh, absolutely. I don't believe in passing on, you know, huge amounts of money. I don't know what I'll have. I don't really, I'm not that interested in money, but I, I don't intend to have some sort of pot of gold for my son. Like, I think he should, I'll go with what my parents said, which is you'll have college will be paid for, and then you got to get on it. So do you think success drives you or the need to make money drives you? No, I think what drives me, what has driven me always for much, uh, well, not maybe not so as much now, but, but certainly for most of my life was a need to be like a need to survive and a need to, uh, which sounds maybe overly dramatic to a lot of people, but I'm, I'm giving you the mind frame of me at 12 years old and 20 years old and I set about a course of studying survival from the time I was a little kid. And uh, when your dad dies, when you're 10 years old, the world becomes a very different place and a very scary place. And I wanted to know that I could survive in that scary world on my own without, I didn't feel, I knew my mom didn't have a plan. I didn't, I felt like the ship was sinking and I wanted to know that I would be able to survive. Here's an important question. 
when you're doing, because you, you do a lot of jobs, 60 minutes, everything around the, but when you're, when you're doing the New Year's special with your friend Andy Cohen, are you as miserable as you look sometimes? <laughs> well, it's usually really cold. So yes, I am miserable <laughs> in that sense. I will say doing it with Andy, it's actually r- really enjoyable. I mean, I don't I meant that drink. In the nicest, I meant that no, in the nicest No, I know, way. I know. <laughs> I don't really drink. So it is the one time of the year that he gets me to drink. And it ends up, for me, it just ends up, it ends up in a pool of like giggling <laughs> at just stuff that's going on. I don't know. It is quite enjoyable. I, I'll tell you, I started working New Year's Eve, I don't know, 15 years ago because I hate New Year's Eve. I, I don't like that forced, the whole forced nature of it. My dad died five days after New Year's Eve in 1978 on January 5th. I remember distinctly New Year's Eve of 1977 to 78, sitting on the floor, uh, sleeping on the floor with my brother in my room, watching New Year's Eve ball drop in Times Square. My dad was in the hospital and we both knew he would probably die. And I was 10 years old and I'm being terrified of what this new year would bring. And ever since then, I have just hated New Year's Eve and working turned that around for me. And work, it's sort of the metaphor for my life. For me, work has always gotten me through. The book is called Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. It's out now from Harper. You can buy it anywhere. But most of all, Anderson, it's been... A super pleasure having you on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I really, um, I love Airmel and I, I love the mix of stories that you all do. So thanks for having me. Thanks for being part of that mix of stories. Well, Michael, before we head off into the weekend, tell me, give me something to do. I've got a few things to do. One of which is a something you've pointed us to, a wonderful new reason to go to Geneva, Switzerland, right? When is the last time you were in Geneva? Mm, the 12th of never. There you go. Now is the time. A fabulous new hotel has opened. It's called The Woodward. It's the latest property from the Etker Collection, which has some marvelous hotels like Hotel du Cap Eden Rock, the Lanesboro in London, the Bristol in Paris. Anyway, they are getting into Swiss territory, if you will, with the beautiful new hotel. It's all suites, 26 of them, and they're just gorgeous. It looks like the ideal place, honestly, for a weekend away. Well, you know where else I want to go then? Tell me. Which is also in the issue. I want to go to mm-hmm. Paris. I always want to go to Paris. Mm. But this week, I want to go there because Alex Lebrano, as you've brought in, and has got a great food and wine column about updating us. Earlier this year, Alain Ducasse left the Plaza Athene, and now there's a new chef there who is sort of taken over the three-star restaurant that was there, and uh, he is got Parisians' tongues a-wagging and lips a-smacking, right? <laughs> Yes. For those who don't follow culinary news to the T, in June, the Plaza Athene dismissed its star chef, Alan Duquesse, after a very long run running a three-star Michelin restaurant at the hotel. And it turns out a talented 40-year-old chef named Jean Ambert took over the post. But Alec wondered, can he actually cook? And it turns out that the answer is a resounding yes. He had an exquisite meal and it wasn't even like the fancy foamy stuff that he had expected. It turns out that he specializes in this kind of down-home comfort food, the kind of thing your grandmother used to make. And Paris is going crazy for it. Actually, there was, we also had a great life this week, a great live, right? We lost a friend in the fashion world, Richard Buckley, right? Yeah, Richard Buckley was a wonderful fashion journalist. He worked for Women's Wear Daily, L'Officiel. He was just one of those voices in fashion that's all too rare, where he had authority and gravitas, but he never lost his sense of humor. And for the past 34 years, he was in a relationship with Tom Ford. The two got married in 2014. They share a young son. And Tom adored Richard, and he wasn't alone. Everyone in the fashion world adored Richard. And he passed away after a long battle with cancer earlier this week. And we have a wonderful story by Richard 
in the issue. A few months ago, he contributed a column for our better half column, which is when we have, it's where we have the spouses give us the dirt on what their partner is really like and how they get all of their work done. And we had planned to run it in a couple of weeks because Tom has a coffee table book coming out, but we ended up running it this week with a little bit of a postscript about Richard. And it's a wonderful story. And it, I actually found this one like hard to edit, Michael, because it just reminds you of so what a love story they had and how deeply they cared for each other. And I'm so pleased that we have it in, in airmail this week. So, oh my God, I'm tearing up again. All right. You got to take us to recommendeds. Well, I recommend a book this week that earlier in the year we had Julia Vitale on our books editor. She recommended a book, which some of you may remember. I finally got a chance to read it and I just want to recommend it again. It's called Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, the Nobel laureate, who I was a big fan of his previously released book, Never Let Me Go, which also kind of dealt with some of the themes here, which sort of like set in the near future, vaguely in the near future, technologically advanced setting. This is also a parable about love and science and humanity. And it is one of these books that I'm reading like 20 pages at a time. I put it down because the images and the ideas are just so beautiful and provocative. It tells the story of Clara, who's an AF, which is an artificial friend, and a human-like robot designed to be a child's companion. And it's quite powerful. And I would just, if you're looking for a great fall book, I'd suggest that. And on the subject of fall books, we're going to have Julia back here to talk about fall books in the next week or two. Uh, the big fall books you should be looking forward to. I'm looking forward to the new Jonathan Franzen and the new Colson Whitehead. So Julia, before you come on the show, please get us some galleys. We need it. And you, my dear, anything to recommend? Only one small thing. New album from St. Vincent called The Nowhere In. It just came out. It's a lot of fun. Listen to it on Spotify. That's all I've got. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. It's always a treat to do the podcast. And on that note, Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Al Sanders Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. And most of all, thank you for joining us.